0: Episode 202 The PL of Value Based Care. Today I speak with Fraser Bunton, President, Value Based Services, over at Evalent Health.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking relentlessly seeking value.
0: As a broad stroke, value-based arrangements produce better patient outcomes than fee-for-service. Healthcare businesses, though, like all other businesses, are rational actors when it comes to the economics of their business models. So when it comes to value-based arrangements or value-based care, the business case for moving forward needs to be clear and present. My interest is the mission of this podcast, to see patient outcomes improve in this country. So we move from number 34 or whatever we are on the WHO billboard charts to at least, let's just say the top 10 as a modest goal. Today I speak with Fraser Bunsen, president of value-based services at Evelyn's Health. Fraser is a noted expert in how to actually achieve value-based incentives and make CFOs happy because CFOs need to be happy for patient outcomes to improve meaningfully at the system level and at the national level. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Frazier, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thank you, Stacey. I'm very glad to be here.
0: If there's a health system out there that is just kind of thinking, you know, we're going to pursue this FFS thing as long as we possibly can and hasn't started on the trajectory toward value-based care. Is that going to be a strategy that will work well in the short term, but not in the long term, or maybe not in either case?
1: What we're seeing that's probably risky around that strategy is affiliation with independent physicians. And independent physicians for health systems have always been the, the competitive area between Health systems from a volume standpoint. And so if if you're not in the value-based care world, if you're only focusing on fee for service, those independent physicians are being courted by someone, some health system, and in every market is thinking, you know, I can't buy these independent physicians or IPAs. Uh, how can I affiliate with them closely? And and actually value-based care and ACOs is is the newest way to do that. And so if, if a system is only looking at fee-for-service, they probably have a pretty loose affiliation with the independent community uh, and somebody else is, is trying to secure a more concrete affiliation with them through value-based care. So I would say there's some risk in, in just sticking to, to that line of business.
0: Why couldn't the health system say we're gonna send you referrals or you can send us referrals. Like how does VBC solidify a relationship more than a uh, you know a fee for service Yeah, or just a fee
1: for service. Yeah, what a value-based care affiliation can do is it really builds clinical integration. And so it's less around a financial point of integration as it is a clinical integration. So when you have value-based care, you have you're linking technology systems between independent physicians and health system you're linking care coordination or care management between health system and independent physicians you've got reporting and clinical programs and the level of connectivity is just much much deeper there is more points of integration from a patient standpoint and from a physician workflow standpoint so your your mind share just increases when you have that level of integration
0: But why wouldn't someone do that in an FFS world? I mean, you could do the same thing. Is it just that because the remuneration is not in the, you know, the reimbursement is not driven by the integration that just nobody does it?
1: Yeah, exactly. There is not a payment mechanism. You can do light versions of it if you're trying to avoid readmission penalties. You might have some financial interest there, but there's just not a, frankly, a payment mechanism that will fund the level of clinical integration that you can in a value-based care world. So, you know, what you pay and what you get is much, much different in that fee-for-service world than a value world.
0: So let me ask you something, Fraser. Obviously, if you have better care coordination, you have better patient outcomes. I think that's pretty unequivocal at this juncture. You'd agree, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what we're talking about here is better care coordination, which is going to lead to better patient outcomes in, let's just say, the vast majority of cases. So are better patient outcomes than the proxy really for value based care? You know, in other words, if your patient outcomes are better, your value based arrangements are going to reward you, while at the same time patients receive better care. So it's kind of a win-win.
1: Yeah, I think there's two ways to answer that question. One is a very technical answer around what are the actual deal terms within your value-based care arrangement with whoever, you know, whoever is on the other side. If it's CMS and it's a Medicare ACO, you know, do they have patient-centric quality parts of the program that you have to do around glaucoma screening and diabetes management and all of these very detailed and technical pieces of it. And that could be with an ACO. That could be with a delegated arrangement with an existing health plan. And so under that model, if the quality metrics or the quality components theoretically are patient-centric, which they generally are, and the reimbursement matches up to that, then yes, absolutely. Kind of the softer answer to it more more conceptual is, if you define value in healthcare as, as cost over quality, and let's say you don't change the quality at all, but you lower the cost, you're still increasing healthcare value, quote unquote. And, and that's probably the first phase. The second phase is you're reducing cost and you're you're actually increasing quality. And I think that's what we're starting to see now is the combination of those two things.
0: Does this pervade only The service lines, which are specifically mentioned in the reimbursement, you know, in other words, you had just mentioned uh, glaucoma screening, which is obviously part of the diabetes quality metrics that are often part of value-based care programs. In value-based care arrangements, is it only certain service lines which tend to be looked at those that align with reimbursement, or is there spillover? How does this work?
1: Yeah, there's a bit of a halo effect. So Usually you're setting up more global parts of infrastructure or initiatives that span across maybe an entire sector. So if you have a, a post-acute initiative around reducing unnecessary health care costs and, and improving quality, that might cover nursing homes, that might cover home health, that might cover long-term care acute centers. It could cover several subsectors within, and you usually point your, your resources, your value-based care, people and technology and, and activities at a set of programs that are larger. So having initiatives that, that cut across usually is how this works, where it's not as focused as around you know one specific component, like a glaucoma screening. You might do that to achieve a quality metric. But in parallel to that, you've probably got some higher level initiatives that are more broadly reaching.
0: So basically what winds up happening is because you're coordinating care, because you're doing patient surveys in order to improve patient satisfaction, which is a lot of times part of these value equations. I know that's what's, you know, CMS is elevating that metric quite a lot because all of these Things are going on, possibly to impact one service line. Others just kind of wind up getting affected. Do you see patient outcomes then across the board? I guess you wouldn't even know because the only quality that's being measured are the <laughs> this is the quality that's being reimbursed.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you could define quality as a reduction in, in patient admissions. You could define quality as a reduction in readmissions. You could define quality as you know, a level, uh, appropriate level of specialist use. So let's say back surgeries in a market, if 40% of the people who present to a spine surgeon are candidates for back surgery and, and you're hovering around that range, you know, all of those can fall under patient outcomes or quality as well, you know, separate from kind of the micro quality components that are there for the payment mechanism.
0: Yeah, and I guess I'm asking all these questions just to sort of determine if our march toward value-based care will actually be a win-win for patients. Will actually the care that patients receive in this country improve and the waste or the fact that there's 75% of patients on a treatment plan that if they go get a second opinion, the treatment plan is going to change and diagnoses are wrong. You know, like I'm I'm just trying to put the dots together and and ascertain whether if as we move from FFS to VBC, the impact that that's going to have on patients in this country.
1: Yeah, I, I think it will. I think it is already, and I think it will. I mean, we we hear anecdotal stories, but you know, you combine the anecdotal stories with the data, and and we're seeing that. I, it feels like not maybe not the final frontier, but one of the next frontiers is where we'll really start to see this is addressing practice variability around diagnosis and treatment. Right now, we are at a point where physicians are getting information and scorecards and dashboards around how they compare either to each other or how they compare to, you know, to industry standards. EMRs are starting to provide care pathways. I think the, the next phase will be really reducing practice variation, which will be the next push on, on improving outcomes. So, so globally, yes, I think we're, we're on the path to that and we'll see some some big changes that will affect that in the future as well.
0: That's actually interesting, especially given the fact that Atul Gawande, who was the appointed president of the Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon and Chase, did they come up with a name for that organization yet? Or do we have to call them the Berkshire Hathaway? It's a tongue twister.
1: Yeah, I think we have to do the uh, tongue twister for now. There's there's no there's no website, there's no not much public anything
0: on it. So we had Atul Gawande, who is the president of the aforementioned organization. And you know, obviously he is the author of the checklist manifesto, which really sure. gets into ensuring all up the other industries that use checklists to effectively reduce variability in pursuit of best practice process. Is that accepted across the industry? If you've got a health system that is well on their way to value-based care and is actually delivering it, as far as the MSSP, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, you know, like they're killing it. Have they managed to reduce practice variability and would you consider that kind of a, a driver of their success?
1: There's different levels of practice variability. Where we're seeing reductions in variability is at a, uh, I'll call it a a sector level. So again, going back to the the post-acute model, if you have a market that has 60 skilled nursing facilities within that market and you look at the star ratings and you look at average length of stay and you look at readmission rates, And you say, you know what, we're going to use these 25 because they have, you know, higher quality, higher stars, you know, lower readmission with a lower length of stay. And we're going to move most of our volume into these 25 because we think they are the the best performing. And, oh, by the way, they'll work with us on transitional care models and clinical programs and whatnot. And so seeing reductions in practice variability with, with that type of model, it's more at a sector level. We haven't yet seen big movement in the more micro level, like within cardiology of um, care pathways and, and reducing variability kind of within the specialties. So it's a start. And, you know, there's plenty of opportunity at the, at the segment level to improve quality and reduce cost.
0: Going back to what we were talking about before, the cost equation, which you sort of teed up just now, what are the factors You know, obviously, practice variability may be being one, because if everyone's pursuing the best practice, then you probably have less waste. But what are the factors that we would want to include in the cost equation that adds up to shared savings revenue, ultimately?
1: Yeah. So when you think about the shared savings and the cost side, what we're really talking about is setting up a, a business unit. And... That business unit within a health system or a physician group, whoever says, you know, we want to go down the path of value based care and and setting up a business unit to execute on that strategy and not doing that off of the side of the desk of fee for service people. So setting up a business unit that has dedicated resources, tools, processes, you know, workspace, everything. And then you think about what is the financial goal of this group? What is their charge? Um, what is their mission? What is their p and And uh, the revenues and the cost associated with that. So as you were alluding to, the, the revenue side, you know, depending upon the, the opportunity or the program or the line of business, if it's a Medicare ACO, it's shared savings. And so that's one side of the equation of the p of this business unit or department. And the operating expenses is, you know, what what does it cost to go uh, achieve those shared savings? And that's the people and the technology and the, the programs and, and all the, the parts that, that go with that. And so on the revenue side, we really see two types of activities that drive value-based care returns or, or revenue. Those are patient-centric programs it is one main category, and then network-centric programs is the other category. And so think about patient-centric programs as traditional care coordination or care management. These are interactions where you use community health workers or RNs or social workers that are interacting directly with a patient in an effort to get them the right care at the right place at the right time. And the byproduct of that will be, you know, lower healthcare costs those are very labor intensive technology intensive and then the other side is are these network programs again going back to my post acute model you know how are you going and finding the best of any sector out there and and working with them to to do things differently to follow specific programs and and so those network programs is the other side of the equation on the on the revenue piece. So there's a lot of complexity that goes into you know, establishing this business unit and, and running it in a way that really focuses on those two different strategies or, or operational tactics to, to achieve the financial goal.
0: I'm trying to discern what the motivation would be to set up a, a separate VBC business unit. And I've thought of two. One of them is because of the complexity of what you just said. Obviously, this takes expertise. This takes dedicated focus. You can't do it off the side of the desk, as, as you just said, you know, kind of like in your spare time. So that might be one. But is the other that actually VBC in many cases runs counter to fee-for-service? <laughs> you know, you're kind of cannibalizing your fee-for-service business when you start doing VBC. So it's really tough. You know, you almost have to have multiple personality disorder to like. <laughs> and yeah. try to get fee-for-service revenue in the morning and then try to take it away in the afternoon.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you nailed it. It's, it is both of those. These are new activities. These are new tactics. These are new methods. You know, typically there, there are pockets of experience within a health system on this, but this has not been the DNA of the organization for the past 20, 30, 40 years. So there's operational complexity. But the other part is exactly right. There is inherent friction in fee-for-service, and value-based care. And it's very difficult for folks that have dual responsibilities. What we see is is people will tend to default back to what they know and what they know is, is fee-for-service. And so if you're trying to go find and eliminate unnecessary healthcare costs and improve quality and outcomes, you have to look within your own four walls as well. And that can be very difficult to do if you live on on both sides. And so having a, a team that is kind of walled off from the fee for service side of the business and, and really has a clear focus on the value side is almost necessary emotionally and just from an experience standpoint.
0: And then how does that all level up to one organizational strategy? You know, is it up to the then the C-suite to determine who wins in the FFS versus VBC fight? I mean, like, who gets to mediate?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Who's the referee? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It comes down to a lot of things. I mean, strength of the leadership and willingness to persevere through this journey. And it is—it's the CEO, it's the CFO, it's the you know senior vice president of population health, the chief medical officer. It's very difficult to say here's what we're going to do for the next three years in, in value-based care, and here's how it's all going to unfold and shake out, and here are the trade-offs on on the fee-for-service side. The rules just, frankly, change more often in the value-based care side right now than the fee-for-service side. And, and so you have on the fee-for-service side, you know, imagine you're gonna do two strategies. One is you're gonna build a new emergency room and, and hospital tower. You know how to do that. You've, you've been doing that throughout your career. You've probably done that within this health system. Your board of directors understands what the costs are on that and, and everything is, is really generally predictable and, and the rules don't change. When you're entering a value-based care world, it is right now, it's just much less predictable. The rules do change. Payers change their shared savings methodology midstream. CMS changes, you know, risk adjustment methodology on a on an MSSP program. And so there's just less certainty on it. And so it is a, the referee is the C-suite and it has to be generally fluid based on what are the latest pieces of information that are driving the results on both the value-based care side and the and the fee-for-service side. Uh, and that's just very difficult emotionally for a lot of health systems and physician groups who have had this predictability to step into this world and their boards of directors to step into this world that just has more variability.
0: Is it often a question of sacrificing the short term for the long term with value-based care? You would make more in the short term, just sticking with what you know, and it feels safe and you're making more money, but you might be setting yourself up for a cliff.
1: Yeah, it is. That's, that's exactly what it is. And, and so when I mentioned that it needs to be fluid, You obviously can't take the health system financially into the ditch and go all in too quickly, but you also can't wait and be left out and, you know, and have all of the relationships lined up and secured. It is a bit of a cannibalization from existing business with a bet on, you know, the same or higher returns. On the value-based care side, and and our chief medical officer was recently telling me the example of what what he did with his prior employer, where they actually closed several hundred beds within the inpatient setting because they had reduced that much inpatient volume, but their value contracts were were starting to deliver, and they were making that back up. So it is a transformation of the business that is slowly reducing one side and slowly bringing up the other side. And matching the pace of the, the declining on one side and the increasing on the other is, is the hardest part.
0: To manage, you know, so you don't have some sort of bad years <laughs> where you exactly. move yeah. too fast or, you know, maybe moved too slowly. And I hate to ask people to prognosticate, but that rarely stops me. What do you think the timeline is on this where the majority of revenue will come from value-based care? versus FFS for the majority of institutions in this country?
1: If you think about two, two large payer blocks, one being CMS for Medicare and the other being states for Medicaid, that is where we're seeing the most activity, the most willingness to localize and, and delegate financial and medical risk which represents a huge portion of of the patient population, maybe a, a much lower portion of the patient profit. But those two arrangements, Medicare and Medicaid at a state level, just for financial reasons. So we are seeing increasing activity there. CMS continues to push their ACO programs you know, down to a path of a more progressive state. So those are continuing to happen. I still think we are probably years away from a tipping point where commercial payers really transform and, and localize and, and trust the health systems and the patient experience enough to, to localize financial and medical risk and push the capabilities or delegate the capabilities out to the health systems. So we're, we're moving, you know, but we are not yet uh, at the tipping point. So I think we're probably, um, frankly, three to five years before we see, you know, a large scale tipping point at scale.
0: Although three to five years, I mean, value-based care is not something that you can just snap your fingers you know, like you need to ramp up. I mean, it's a as you just were talking about, it's a giant culture shift. It's a system shift. It's whole new departments. So clearly, as we, you know, hearkening back to the beginning of this conversation where we were talking about how it's really important to dip toes in waters and start getting maybe knee high at this juncture, this is probably why. Because three to five years is not that far away.
1: Yeah, you're right. And it takes a long time. I mean, it just as it takes a long time to break ground on a new tower or emergency room and construct it and market it and then fill it with patients, it also takes a long time to establish a value-based care infrastructure, set up that business unit or department, secure the right lines of business, train the staff, you know, fail succeed and and you know turn that into a real business as well it is a long path and having the the fortitude and the perseverance to understand that it's not going to happen in month 1 or even month 6 or or even month 12 frankly
0: you'd mentioned unnecessary costs a couple of times are there any instances where removing unnecessary costs actually align ffs and vbc are some of the unnecessary costs that people are focusing on administrative I.e., even in an FFS world, you'd make more money if you streamline and get more efficient in how you're doing things. Or like there was an article in The Wall Street Journal recently about knee surgeries where Gunderson, I think, went and actually did a Frederick Taylor <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and monitoring, it, like they were running around yeah. with a stopwatch, checking how long it took everybody to do things and looking at all the materials that they were using and actually re-engineered the process and saved like five grand or I mean, it was something that's pretty substantial. Or do unnecessary costs refer to all of the MRIs that were needlessly ordered, which in an FFS world, you'd get compensated for, you know, the procedures and diagnostic tests that have been the bulwark of many people's revenue streams for a long time. Time that would necessarily go away in VBC, or is it some combination of you know you win some, you lose some?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a great question. You, when people reference unnecessary healthcare costs and and value based care, they're typically referring to reimbursable costs, not administrative costs. But the the administrative cost side, the the underlying cost structure of a health system. You know how efficient are they? Are they a Southwest turn the airplane in twenty minutes? you know, very consistent or they, uh, you know, another airline with with high variability and less efficiency, the underlying cost structure, administrative cost structure will be more of an enabler. And that, that's, how, that's how a lot of systems are thinking about it is they may not be reimbursed for that under a shared savings arrangement or under if they launch a health plan, but having an underlying cost structure that is competitive and allows them to, you know, to run uh, lean will be an enabler in, in a world during this transition period where you're potentially making less fee-for-service revenue combined with more of your patient mix is Medicare and Medicaid due to you know the aging of our country. And so that side is really an enabler of success.
0: This necessitates, and you had mentioned this earlier, a gigantic cultural shift, even in the way that medicine is practiced. You'll have, in some ways, people's perception of good medicine translates to lots of medicine. You know, you get a physician saying, well, you know, I'm going to treat this very conservatively, which basically means I'm going to run every single test. I'm going to do all this diagnostic. And, you know, sometimes that is actually not in certain cases, the most conservative or even the best practice medicine. Like There's a reason why unnecessary screenings are getting such a bad name, but I could see from a physician standpoint, if you have the opportunity to screen, why wouldn't you to get to the bottom of it?
1: What we're seeing is pretty fascinating. It's pretty amazing when this value-based care strategy is set up and people get on board. I've been in meetings with senior executives within health systems that have been in a fee-for-service world all of their career and they are extremely creative. They are pushing the boundaries on new ways to reduce unnecessary healthcare costs. And it's frankly amazing. It is goosebumps exciting to see someone say, well, what if we did this? Or what if we changed the way our specialists did this? Or what if we had a co-management agreement? You know, we can make sure that patients are handed back over. Like the level of innovation when people get on board is, is just stunning. And then on the physician side as well when you set up a physician infrastructure and you start to you know have the physician say i want to i want to see my report i want to know how i'm doing compared to xyz or i want to know how many of my patients that hit the emergency room went into observation versus admission like that stuff is real and it's happening out there and it is uh, incredibly exciting to see so there there definitely is a movement towards that when it starts
0: So it sounds like what you're suggesting in order to help facilitate this culture shift is give physicians a feedback loop. Give the data back to them so that they can see how many of the procedures actually amounted to better health and how many of the diagnostic tests actually netted a real positive as opposed to a whole bunch of false positives.
1: Yeah. A, a dangerous part of, of making promises that physician practices will be perfect under a value-based care world and, and you can see 10 patients a day and and everything will be perfect. And and just as all of this is a path and a, a migration for everyone, it's just not going to look like that on day one for physicians. It's more of you will have additional resources and help and information and, uh, and support to manage patients. But doing what you referred to, the first step of, of information, and here's globally what we're trying to do as a system and a strategy and explaining the context around, you know, we're moving from here to there, explaining we're going to start with this, this line of business or these two lines of business, then moving into an information sharing. You know, we want to share just your information with you on how you're doing on, you know, these five key performance indicators. And then moving into, here's how you're doing against all of your peers in a, in a blinded manner. Like you can't see anyone else's names and they can't see your name. And then the next phase is, okay, let's just pull the curtain back and let's look at how we're all doing, you know, across all of these metrics. And then, you know, you have a physician walking down the hall and saying, hey, how are you getting, you know, length of stay so short at nursing homes? Like, I don't feel like I have any control over that environment. What what are you doing there? And that information sharing and then you layer on a you know a revenue share or an incentive to the physicians where they get to share in the benefits. So, you know, we made X, X million dollars in shared savings and certain percent of that goes to the to the physicians. So that that is how this stuff um, really unfolds. And and then eventually you want it to be really directed by the the PCPs and the physicians are are essentially the internal customer of the entire healthcare ecosystem. And they should be thinking, "You know, what would the PCP think if he or she's you know saw me do this healthcare activity and And so that's that's the migration. That's the path and uh, how we see some of this unfolding.
0: What is Evelyn's role in all of this?
1: We're a partner. We're an operating partner and and that's a kind of broad and ambiguous um, <laughs> way to describe our business. But you know we are not dropping technology and and you know, picking up a subscription payment monthly. We're not bringing in consultants and giving you the answer and then leaving. Our role is to, and we mentioned, you know, setting up a new business unit or or a value based care department. We help health systems that are that are ready to move that are not tiptoeing, but are are ready to move with some degree of volume into value-based care. We help them identify the right line of business. We help them establish the the operating department or business unit. That's often co-staffed by health system employees and Avalon employees. We bring value-based care technology, clinical programs, reporting and analytics. We do that and then we stay. We stay for three years, five years, 10 years, we want to be at, at risk for success and failure of that business unit and that, um, that operating arrangement. So it really has great alignment and it, it allows us to establish an environment where all of those partners are sharing with each other successes and failures and tactics and methods in a way that would just be very difficult to do on their own. So uh, it's really enjoyable and uh, the innovation and the collaboration side is Is what I love about
0: it. Where can people go to get more information about Evalent Health? Should they be intrigued, Frazier?
1: Starting point would be um, our website. We've got lots of information about our company and our services and our leadership team and our outcomes. I encourage folks to participate in our, our earnings calls. We are a public company and we do share a lot of strategy and operational information in those. So those would probably be the best two places to go.
0: Oh, that's a, a great tip to participate in earnings calls. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Frazier.
1: Oh, Stacey, I've enjoyed it as well. And uh, thanks for having me.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of